Because the whole world gone crazy! Just please, go nuts. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? I mean, really, explore the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down there somewhere. Let me take another one. <laughs> Pause for effect. Excellent. Excellent. Here we are. It's a beautiful animal day. It is a beautiful animal day on a beautiful animals podcast. Welcome back to another episode. We're in your ears yet again. Can you believe it? I don't even freaking believe it. I had a friend ask me recently. They're like, oh, you guys are still doing that, huh? (laughs) I'm like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. After seven whole weeks, huh? Wow. Anyway, that's your host over there, Andy Bosch. Hi. This is the other host over here, Tyler Cole. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being back in the studio oh, yeah. with me, my friend. Oh, thank you. Thanks for opening the door to the studio and allowing me to step my foot in. Anyway, we're back in the studio. We are back in your ears. Thank you so much for listening to us again. Uh, we've come to love this. Yeah, we appreciate we're, it. We're digging it. Yeah, so I hope you guys are too. And man, I got to tell you, I love your feedback so much. Keep sending the emails. It's Keep calling. It's so fun to talk to you guys about all this stuff. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So we're back in the studio today to talk about uh, a book that's near and dear to my heart, as it was kind of the book that, for me, reignited my uh, love of reading nonfiction in a non-academic setting. I haven't been in school for a long time, but I still like to learn things, and reading nonfiction books is a great way to do that. Books are a good way to learn stuff. Yeah, you know what is another good way? What's that? Listening to Beautiful Animals Podcast. Oh, damn. That was quite the setup right there. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, the story I'm going to tell you today, Tyler, is about a guy, about a man. Sometimes there's a man. He's the man for his time and place. Alexander von Humboldt was such a man. He single-handedly like advanced many different fields of science by extraordinary leaps and bounds. Mm. His contributions to science, philosophy, government, you, you'll see, we'll get into the end part, is like kind of the ripple effects that he yeah. had on the world. So influential, so many people re- read his books, corresponded with him, and it changed their lives. He was like a really incredible person. Alexander von Humboldt, The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolf is the book, our primary source for today's episode. It details the story of Alexander von Humboldt's, from his uh, beginnings in Prussia to his travels in South America, Latin America, and the U.S., and then his return to Europe and the contributions he made on the scientific scene and the political scene, and the different people he corresponded with and influenced from that point forward. This guy had a huge impact. His writings, his ideas, not only moved science forward, but moved politics forward and and changed the world in a lot of ways. So we're going to just get into it. Are you ready? Let's fucking get into it. Let's talk about Alexander von Humboldt. Yeah, tell me about him. He was born in Prussia in uh, on September 14, 1769. He was the second of two sons born into a wealthy Pomeranian family. His father had served in a couple of previous wars and was like, he was like an advisor to the king of Prussia. Mm -hmm. So he was, they were like upper, very upper, upper crust. Yeah. Right? They like lived in the palace and everything. You know, I'm not, I'm not a big proponent of income disparity (laughs) or anything (laughs) like that. Totally. The people that moved science forward, like in this 1500s through like present day, it was only people that had a lot of money. Because if you didn't have a lot of money, you were just a farmer or something. Yeah, exactly. and you had no opportunity to pursue your goals. And it's the same in like the art community, music, and all that. Like, yeah. People that are able to spend time on stuff, they're able to do that because they don't have to worry about money. They don't have to spend all the time. They don't time have to try and survive all their whole <laughs> yeah. lives. They're just like, yeah, I just wanted to note that because I feel like anytime we're talking about these kind of famous scientists, and we're going to talk a lot about a lot of them on different episodes, they all come from these wealthy families. And it's just because those are the only people that had the opportunity yeah. to participate in the sciences and to study this stuff. And it's, it's great that they were allowed that and were able to make those contributions, but... I often wonder, like, how many Einsteins and how many von Humboldts and how many Newtons are just out there digging. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, so Alexander von Humboldt, uh, he was born the second of two sons to mother and father in Prussia in 1769. His older brother, Wilhelm, was much more inclined toward classical education. He was really into books. He was really into studying. Alexander, who was two years younger than him, even from a very young age, just really into the natural world. So he was always just picking up bugs and putting them in his pockets and checking out rocks and all that kind of stuff. A huge part of what we like to call the fuck around and find out method. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. It's the yeah. abbreviated scientific method. Exactly. <laughs> you just grab stuff and you look yeah. at it. You look uh, at it, stick it in your pocket, <laughs> fuck around and find out. He was nicknamed the little apothecary when he was a little kid because he just always had all kinds of shit in his pockets. Nice. <laughs> Which, you know, honestly, I think most young kids have that well, yeah, kind totally. of uh, natural curiosity about the natural world. And the rich ones get to explore it for their whole lives. So anyway, <laughs> I'll just shut up eventually. Um, unfortunately, at a young age, at the age of nine, their father died. He was a nine-year-old father. Okay. at <laughs> When Alexander was nine, their father died. And at that point, I don't, I don't know her history or anything, but their mom really, like, just checked out. Yeah. She she kind of hated her kids. Oh. Yeah, she's like, fuck these guys. And she kind of <laughs> just, like, abandoned them, and they were raised from that point on by tutors. Okay. Essentially. I mean, they were wealthy, right? So they oh, had, yeah. They had servants. So they were just raised by- The help. Yeah, really smart tutors and, yeah, the help. So, I mean, that was pretty fundamental. Like, you know, they would live under the sort of cloud of their mom's, like, depression and hatred, Mm -hmm. like, their whole childhood. Oh, yeah. But even though that was, like, not a happy way to be raised, they both, both Wilhelm and Alexander, uh, excelled in school pretty dramatically. Like, they both did a really great job and, you know, got good marks and all that stuff. Wilhelm went on to become a diplomat and work in the Prussian government, like his father before him. And then Alexander... um, when he graduated from school, became a, a mine inspector for Prussia. And he would inspect mines. And even from the outset, his you'll see that he's a man of the people. And yep. he's not big on dictatorships. At this point in time, Prussia is still run for, by a king. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many. I mean, it's 1769, so uh, the Declaration of Independence hasn't even been written, right? So there's not that many democracies yeah. <laughs> out there. But so he's at the early stages of, of developing those viewpoints. Now he was a nice guy. So his like whole approach was to try and make mining better for the miners, safer, yeah. <laughs> safer <laughs> and better for miners. Yeah. So he, even when he got into that, even though he was, you know, working for companies or working for companies related to the government, he was trying to make it safer and more hospitable and easier for the people that were actually in the mines. Yeah. It's probably a good thing. Yeah, and this formed like a lot of his early naturalistic studies. You know, he was going around to different areas that had mines and going down all the way down in the mines and figuring out better ways to extract minerals and just studying geology and geography and all these explorations. During this time period, uh, when he was in his this is during in his twenties, right? He's graduated from school. He's working as a mine inspector. Yeah, or he developed a relationship with a pretty famous Prussian. Goethe. He was a poet and a naturalist, and he wrote the book. The mo- the book he's most famous for now is Faust. Okay, you've heard of that. Uh, I've heard the the word. Have you ever heard of like a Faustian deal or a Faustian contract? I don't think so. No. Really? Not by the name, at least. Oh well, it's it means like a deal with the devil. Oh, or actually, I think Faust was a, like an opera originally, but it's this guy is approached by the devil in the form of Mephistopheles. Anyway, I haven't read it. I'm going to read it. We'll do a thing about it. Cool. Oh, let me just say a little bit more about Humboldt's character. I didn't really talk as much about it as I meant to. He, like, he probably now would be diagnosed with ADD, right? He was, like, had a lot of energy, didn't want to focus on one subject at a time. Yeah. He was, like, all over the place, but he was super smart. So he's just, like, kind of frenetic, kind of manic. Yeah. For most of his life, he only slept, like, four hours a night. That's just how he rolled. Yeah, I mean, certain people are just like that. and Yeah. Yeah. He was one of those people. He only needed to sleep four hours a night. He was just like a font of activity. He was always going. He was thin and wiry and just like always had energy and always studying stuff and always doing experiments. Yeah. Really excited all the time about stuff. So when he would visit with uh, Goethe, Goethe was already super famous for uh, writing a poem called The Sorrows of Young Werner. And it was just like kind of poetic adventure about this guy and- it had made him super famous. Uh, everybody in Germany was like loved it. They even dressed like the character from the poem. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> he started a whole fashion trend like, of people wearing like yellow jackets and brown vests. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Seventeen nineties pop culture. Oh yeah, big time pop culture. One thing that the more we do like these history episodes, it's really starting to hit me how how many fewer people there were in the world. Oh yeah. So it's like you see like these trends start and you're like, how did this guy write a poem? And then everybody's wearing this. There's only like 20,000 people. (laughs) Yeah. There aren't that many people. (laughs) Anyway. So he's visiting with this famous poet. He, he, you know, he's part of Prussian upper crust kind of from the beginning. So he's already got connections and kind of a network. But it becomes friends with Goethe. A lot of people say that the character Faust in this, which is a really famous work 
that of course you already know about <laughs> was inspired by Humboldt because of the kind of energy that he has is kind of seemingly derived from devilish oh. origins. Yeah, almost like, you know, this uncanny energy that never stops and he barely has to sleep and he can just keep going. Yeah, so he's got all this potential for productivity and they have to demonize it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'll be demonized a little bit. Also because he's gay. Oh. Not openly because, you know, yeah. 1769, oh. but, you know. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, one of the things that really struck Humboldt was on one of, uh, he would hang out with Goethe. And again, I, we kind of talked about this in the Young series a little bit, but like the sciences and the arts were much more uh, intertwined. Oh, yeah. In this time period. So Goethe, I mean, basically, if you were rich, you could do science or you could do art and you could do both of them. Because it wasn't yeah. even like really science at that time. It was basically just philosophy. Yeah. I mean, there you was like, some science. Yeah. But they're just kind of like writing, this is how I think this works after this yeah. observation. So it was like, yeah. It was a lot closer to philosophy, just like you have to just writing, a, formulating some sort of verbal description. Yeah. And so. Actually, there was still, there was still in this time period kind of a divide between the rationalists and the imperialists mm-hmm. in terms of thought about science. Yeah. The rationalists thought that all of science could be derived from logical thinking. So you okay. just think your way through <laughs> everything. <Yeah. laughs> and the Im- imperialists believed in uh, empiric data. Right. In order to find out, you have to fuck around. You have to fuck around. You have to observe. You have to gather. You have to do experiments. Yeah. Right. So there was still a divide in science about whether or not experiments <laughs> yeah. should exist. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, you're right. There's still a lot of uh, sort of philosophical yeah. element. Anyway, I love that to say when you would visit Goethe, they would geek out about science and philosophy <laughs> and the arts. They would go out and observe things and do experiments. One of the experiments that he did with Goethe that stuck with Humboldt for a long time was they took this frog leg, I imagine taken from a live frog, and uh, they were trying to like electrocute it to make it move. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they had it on this like plate. It wasn't doing anything. And then when Humboldt like leaned over and breathed on it, it started to kick. Huh. And he figured out that it was because of the moisture from his breath that oh. allowed the electrical current to move mm. into the leg. Anyway, but he said it in, in that moment, it kind of blew his mind because it felt like he had breathed life yeah. into the frog leg. And he was like, whoa. And it just further cemented uh, his love for empiricism and for science and for experiments. Yeah. So he, he held on to that for a long time. So he was still working as a mine inspector, kind of going about his business, occasionally, you know, going on these visits with Goethe and, and his brother Wilhelm. That was the thing. Wilhelm lived in the same city as Goethe. That's how they oh, knew okay. each other. He's working as, as a mine inspector and he's enjoying his time, but he's not in love with it. Yeah. And he and he still feels like pressured to participate in Prussian society and do his job as a mine inspector by his mom and by the sort of um, need to be proper. But really, really wants to do is explore and experiment and do different stuff. Fuck around and find out. Yeah. Keep saying it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so a few years later, when he's 27, his mom uh, dies of cancer after a year uh, long battle with cancer. He, his brother and him both go and visit her for a little while, but she's just so kind of unpleasant. No, yeah, really? Yeah. That in the last month of her life, neither of them are there. Yeah. She dies alone and neither of them go to her funeral. <laughs> nice. Yeah. But with her death, they both inherited like a huge fortune. So I'm within a month Humboldt was already planning his expedition. He's like, "Oh yeah, okay, great. I'm She's dead. Here. I'm fucking out." Yeah, <laughs> he was like, "Not gonna stick around." Although for a while, I guess he was kind of haunted in his mind by the spirit of his mother. Like he oh, felt yeah. kind of guilty, I think, about not spending the last month with her, and, yeah, and about kind of changing his life and going away from what she had sort of set out for them. Yeah, naturally. Yeah, and he got all this money from her, but he still planned his voyage. That would change his life. Yeah, because I, I mean, like, even if she was totally unpleasant it's like still your mom it's unfortunate this time period too like um again science wasn't as developed as it is now so he did attend seances <laughs> trying to oh, rid really? himself of his mom's spirit yeah. yeah like he was a scientist but you know he still believed in spirits i mean anyway so after the death of his mom and his inheritance of a huge fortune he really set his sights on trying to find uh, an expedition he was trying to figure out how to put together an expedition he wasn't even sure where he wanted to go he just wanted to go yeah. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> I've been there. Right? And so, yeah. <laughs> His brother at this point, Wilhelm, was living in Paris. So he ended up going to Paris to try and figure out if he could put together an expedition from there. Um, and he was there for a while trying to figure it out. 
like at first he met up with this guy that was going to go on an expedition, a scientific expedition, but circumnavigating the globe and they were mm-hmm. going to go off to Australia, but uh, that didn't work out. And then um, there was another chance they went over to Marseille because they thought maybe they could go. Napoleon at this point was had in Egypt, had just invaded Egypt. They thought maybe they could go down to Egypt and do some studying down there of ancient Egyptian ruins and such, but it was too dangerous. Just a, like a little side note right here. This is this is right at the beginning of the Napoleonic era. So this is in 1799. Napoleon later that year would be elected to first consul, which was like the highest you know seat in France at the time. France had been uh, an absolute monarchy until the French Revolution in 1792, seven years prior, which you may have heard of. That's when there was the whole let them in cake. Mm-hmm. A bunch of French people got together and started the Estates General. We'll do a whole deep dive on it later. France started a revolutionary war against its own monarchy in 1792. This guy named Robespierre came into power in 1793 and started what's called the Reign of Terror. Where Sounds like a bit of an improvement. Yeah, Reign of Terror, yeah, yeah. better than a monarchy. <laughs> uh, where they executed like a lot of people for no reason. And it was all kind of chaos. I mean, it was founded with the like <clears throat> Egalité, Fraternity, and Liberté, right? Which mm-hmm. means equality, freedom and brotherhood mm-hmm. or like the three aspects that France was founded on. So it was kind of the first of these democratic pushes in the European countries, but it was fucking chaos until basically until Napoleon took the whole country in hand and became a dictator. But again, we'll do a whole deep dive on it just so you guys know for context. Humboldt is in France right before Napoleon totally seizes power as first consul and later emperor so it's still the french republic and napoleon is leading some wars to protect the french republic before turning it into an empire anyway so they're in france (laughs) and they're trying to figure out this this how to put together an expedition this is actually i say they he met a guy named bonplan at this time period who was a botanist and he's described as just like a a sturdy and healthy guy, kind of a steak of a man, nice. you know, kind of a, I imagine him as a Dan Barr type dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. Standard uh, Dan Barr archetype. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a steady, uh, strong guy. And they become super good friends. He's like, I think when he runs into him, they're staying in the same building. You know, they're both renting a room in this building and he runs into him and Bonplan's like carrying around a bunch of like glass cases with bugs and stuff in them. Yeah. So he's like, oh, you're a cool guy. <laughs> nice. They become super good friends, maybe lovers, who knows. So they're together now looking for, uh, trying to put together an expedition. They're unable to do it in France. It's just, there's too much going on. Too much uh, dangerous stuff going on. Yeah. Even if they could get a ship, they're all kind of in use because Napoleon's basically waging war against every country, all of them, at the same time. So there's no free ships. So they end up leaving Paris, leaving Marseille, and going to Spain. In Spain, Humboldt ends up getting the getting an audience with the king of Spain. He is granted permission to take an expedition and take a Fran- uh, Spanish ship to South America. So you said you were talking about that he was going to go on a voyage around the world, but that just never happened? It fell through. Yeah. yeah. The guy he was going to go with, I forget exactly what happened. The guy he was going to go with, like, bailed or whatever. Yeah. yeah. He, he had a bunch of tries that didn't work out. Basically from 1796, <laughs> when his mom died, he was trying to get an expedition together, and it took him until 1799 to to figure yeah. it out. And, okay, yeah. yeah. So it took him a while. But anyway, at this point, he's in Spain. The king says, yeah, you can take the ship. It's called the Pizarro. You may use it. Humboldt's like, great. I mean, Humboldt offered to pay for the whole thing himself. It's not like he was getting money or anything from yeah. The king of Spain, it was just use of the ship. I but see, Humboldt yeah. paid for the whole thing out of his personal fortune, which was considerable. Which is ample. Which was ample, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we get into the meat of it, dude. This is section yeah. two, because we're about to, we're fucking, okay, so now Humboldt has his ship. He's leaving Spain, and he's about to start the journey of a lifetime. This is it, people. This is it. This is the real deal. So he leaves Spain on the ship, the Pizarro, June 5th, 1799. They're headed for South America. Their first stop is the island of Tenerife. Oh, Tenerife, the largest and most populous island in the Canary Islands. That's right. <laughs> I knew that off the top of my head. Yeah, because you're so good at geography. Oh, yeah. and where are the in Canary Cuba. Islands again? Oh, uh, <laughs> let me just... Uh, they're off the coast of Morocco. Oh, yeah. So Northern Africa. pretty close there to Spain. Yeah. When they get to Tenerife, when they first get there, it's socked in with fog. Oh. They pull into the port. It's all foggy. They go, they stay at their house. He wakes up in the morning and he goes out and like sees the double crown of this huge ass volcanoes that are on Tenerife. Mm -hmm. 
And he's like, sick. So we go. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah. So like right from the get go, him and Bonplan, they're only in Tenerife for like two days. Okay. And they just like go for it. <laughs> yeah. And they climb to the top of these volcanoes. So you can tell like he's just been so eager to get on this expedition. Yeah. I want to fucking see some shit. Exactly. And as soon, even on this first island, it's Canary Islands, it's right near Europe. He's already like, well, I'm going to start climbing mountains now. He's <laughs> yeah. like, I'm not going to wait. While they're there, though, like the second day they're there after they get back down off the mountain, it's his first sighting of like slave markets. Oh. Yeah. And Welcome he, to the real world. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's certainly like a little bit of a loss of innocence for him. I mean, he had never seen anything like that before. Yeah, and like it, even, he, even though he, he was knew like- knew about it, but he hadn't like- Yeah, he had servants and things, but- yeah. Didn't like f- have full on slavery mm-hmm. like in his uh, immediate circle. He wrote about it in his journal, just like seeing slaves. There was like a slave market literally across the street from his hotel, and he just he wrote about how seeing them being forced to cover themselves in coconut oil so that their skin was shiny, mm-hmm. and like being inspected, like their teeth being inspected like horses. He was just immediately disgusted by it, and this would this would play into his um you know political ideals later on, like this experience of his first experience seeing slaves he's like knew from the get-go i do not like this this is terrible well that's admirable yeah he was (laughs) he was way ahead of his time i mean yeah i would like to think that anybody like upon seeing another (laughs) human being sold would would be like that's bad but obviously not everybody did yeah so after tenerife they sailed to south america where's that it's south of north america oh yeah yeah. and uh (laughs) they land in argentina almost right after they get there they're staying in this little port city and there's a big earthquake. Oh, shit. Humboldt had never experienced anything like this before. And at this point in time, in and, and <laughs> it's crazy because this earthquake starts. Humboldt gets out of bed and immediately starts setting up his instruments. Oh, yeah. He's, he's got like, all these What is this? I need to measure it. Exactly. Yeah. And he's measuring the time between, like, the ripples. Uh-huh. And he's measuring, like, even though, I mean, I don't know how long it lasted. Maybe a minute. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty big earthquake. But he notes the frequency of the different, like, movement, notes that it's coming from north to south. Oh, like, uh, Yeah, like, is immediately able to make all these observations on the go. He's just, like, not phased at all. He's just immediately in scientist mode, like, observe, report, yeah. like, study, right? <laughs> Crazy. But inside, he's freaking out a little bit. And he writes about it in his journal because he says, uh, at this point in time, there were two kind of warring theories in ge- geology, yeah. right? Neptunism and plutonism are you familiar with these i remember them but i don't remember what the difference is i can tell you so neptunism was the belief and this is what humboldt believed that all tectonic activity they didn't call it tectonic activity yeah the time but all movement was due to water that there was water underneath all of the ground on earth and that's why things would move and shift as opposed to plutonism which was the belief that there was magma Mm. basically until this time, Humboldt believed in Neptunism, that it was just all water action. And then when he experienced the earthquake, he's like, okay, fuck no. Like, <laughs> water did not do this. Yeah, well, it really came to the, he came to the understanding that the solid ground solid ground could move. It, it completely changed his perspective on the solidness of Earth. Yeah. Like, because he, he hadn't experienced an earthquake before. So seeing the ground ripple and roll and move, he was like, oh, okay magma can exist there can't be liquid earth like (laughs) i get it they knew about volcanoes but they thought that volcanoes were a result of like coal or some other combustible material oh yeah like fire yeah fire underneath the earth and that's what was doing it but that all of the earth was like kind of on water Mm. yeah the the continents are floating in the ocean yeah pretty much yeah yeah so it at that point on he was a complete convert to plutonism and believed in magma and all that stuff yeah, so those aren't the concepts that I thought they were. I thought oh. what I was thinking of was was catastrophism and gradualism, which are two oh. theories of like everything is the way it is, and c- catastrophism is like the Earth was shaped, all the mountains were built all at one time in one big event, and the actual more accurate explanation is gradualism. Everything was slow, like little th- things happened one at a time right. in order or whatever, and so. Like yeah. little volcanoes made mountains and then little erosion slowly changed them. Yeah, exactly. Just like a big bang yeah. and everything fucking came into its current shape. Yeah, so it's not at all related to what you were talking about. Oh, well, anyway. Cool, so I learned something. Still interesting. I, That's what we're here for. So after that experience, they continued on to Argentina. Um, I thought that's where they were. That is where they were. Yeah. But they continued on <laughs> through in, Argentina. in Argentina. The way their expedition went, it wasn't like... 
they were just sticking with one ship and it was going to go everywhere they went. Mm-hmm. Like they got a ride to South America on the Pizarro and then they kind of did their own thing after that. Did they like have another tri- ship lined up or just... Nah, man, they were just... So kinda... the arrangement they made in Spain was just to get a ride to Argentina? Pretty much. Okay, I, yeah. I, I, they actually... I think they stayed on the Pizarro from there to Cuba and then back. Like they took a couple trips with it. They had okay. a kind of a deal with that ship for a few different things. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like they were just going to stay with that ship and do whatever they did. He yeah. charted it, chartered it for that trip to South America, and then after that, he had to make other deals. But again, he was filthy friggin' rich. <laughs> yeah. So you can kind of do what you want when you're that rich. <clears throat> anyway, while in Argentina, he really wanted to go to this place called the Valley of Aragua, which was a famous agricultural center, mm-hmm. right? They grew their spices, indigo, coffee, all kinds of stuff, right? But he, um, when he went there... He talked a lot to the local people and to the native people, and he, dis- or not discovered, but through his observations, came to the realization that the there were lakes in the area that were fed by springs that had been getting lower and lower and lower every year, mm-hmm. and that there were rivers that used to be year-round that were now seasonal, and he started to kind of realize the whole area that, that had been forested, the whole area had been forested before all these crops were planted in that area. And he put two and two together and realized, like, after the trees were cut down, the ground cover that used to grow under the trees couldn't grow there. Yeah. And without the ground cover, the soil was losing moisture because it was exposed to the sun. Yeah. And when it lost moisture and was exposed to the sun, it was more susceptible to erosion. And basically, through this series of events, there was less healthy soil. There was less natural springs, less natural water in the area because the soil couldn't hold it anymore. He like saw these areas, these hills that were all covered in what had been lake bottom sediment. Yeah. And realized like, holy shit, we are like literally destroying this agricultural ecosystem because of the monoculture and the like single crop planting that we're doing. And so he kind of was one of the first people to figure out, I mean, he really was at least the first person to popularize human made climate change. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. like, yeah, it seems like until then people had just thought probably actually kind of still do think the world is the way it is and it'll always be like that. And there's no way that humans could change things. Well, uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the prevailing theory about nature was that it existed for us. Yeah. It existed for us to subjugate and order. And that once we had ordered nature, it was in a better and healthier state mm-hmm. than when it was wild. I mean, this idea goes all the way back to the Bible, right? No one really understood that a garden or a farm was less healthy yeah. than like a field or a forest. Yeah, because like they define healthy as, oh yeah, it's producing food for as me. productive. So yeah, yeah, and then the human impact of like, yeah, they might look at a lake and be like, oh, that's where I can get water. And then they could take as much water as they need from it. And which was true for a long time because there was no human scale that could actually get enough water out of that lake to actually affect the lake. Right. But then as the mass farming and stuff all started in the coffee farms and all like... Yeah, he particularly cites, I mean, like in his journals from this time period, he talks about how indigo, which is only grown so you can dye clothes blue. Mm -hmm. That was the whole purpose of indigo, Mm -hmm. right? Indigo had like... And the production of indigo had single-handedly destroyed like (laughs) so much acreage of forest. Yeah. um, And was getting rid of basically all the water in this area just so people could have blue clothes. And his mind was blown by that. He couldn't believe it. But And again, because the prevailing theory of like farming was that it was the right thing to do for the world, for the planet. Yeah, you're like, you're improving this forest by turning it into a productive coffee farm. But then you're like, oh, what happened to the... So he was a very early... proponent of like different farming styles and yeah. not not doing monoculture and not doing huge monocrop farms yeah anyway so yeah he spent this uh he that was his first visit was aragua uh he really wanted to discover if there was a connection between the orinoco river and the amazon river basically there's this huge river in the northern part of south america and then there's the amazon river And there was, like, a fabled connection between the two. Like, they were actually connected. So he spent four months mapping the Orinocos and the connections to the Amazon. Little did he know it had already been discovered and proven. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. But he... He just just hadn't read that book yet. He hadn't. Literally, yeah. And this is how science worked back then. A lot of people were doing the same shit. Not everybody (laughs) knew. One of the things about Humboldt and his visits to South America, he was so meticulous and he was constantly taking observations and 
mapping out their geographical position on the globe, that the maps that he produced from his visits to South America were much more accurate mm-hmm. than anything from before. So even though this waterway had already been discovered and proven to exist, his maps were way better. Nice. Yeah, I mean, he took better measurements and he drew better maps yeah. than people before him. But possibly in part because he had better instruments because he was rich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that'll help that'll help yeah but also because he was just insanely dedicated to the work and yeah like slept only four to two hours a night <laughs> he's <was laughs> yeah. a crazy person anyway so the the guys uh him and bumpon spent four months mapping this canal between the orinocos and the amazon all the while collecting samples taking observations and collecting specimens of plants and animals they take a little trip to cuba and they drop off a bunch of trunks full of specimens Mm -hmm. and notes and all this stuff and then they head back to south america to continue on their journey they're ready to move on from argentina so they they head to colombia after going to cuba and they have another guy with him now jose de pina who was uh he was actually had been hired on as a captain to pilot one of the dugout canoes that they surveyed the Orinocos with. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was like a native guy. He would join them and stay with them for basically the rest of their adventures in South America. So they go to Colombia, hang out with a guy in Bogota or Bogota for a while, and then they decide to go to Quito, which is a city in the middle of the Andes Mountains, like Mm -hmm. south and in the middle of the Andes. They travel overland because you have to. It takes them six months. Like they leave on July 6th, 1801. And they're headed, and they don't get there until January 6th, 1802. And it is just a really terrible journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean... Th- Must be through a, jungle and over it's mountains. It's through and jungle everything. and over, like, you know, 12,000 feet elevation mountains. Yeah. And this mountain range is crazy. I mean, it's like there are mountains, uh, mountains and then mountains and then mountains. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy inhospitable area. <laughs> yeah. So you're going from, like, humid, hot jungle... And then up these mountains into snowstorms and thunderstorms, right? Super low visibility. And then you're dropping back, back down into, <laughs> into human jungles. jungles. Yeah. yeah. And then you're climbing back up a mountain and fucking snow and ice and all this bullshit. He talks about traveling up this eight inch wide muddy path through the jungle, right? And it's just on the path, there are bamboo shoots growing up out of the mud. And you know, a bamboo shoot is super sharp. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So after a little while, their shoes are torn up and then they just have to ditch their shoes. So then they go barefoot for like the next couple of months. They <laughs> nice. all get sick. They all get fucked up. Like they barely <laughs> make it. <laughs> it's like. Jungle's brutal, man. He says, he describes like some parts of the jungle being so thick and so dense. They were literally in complete darkness. They can't see the jungle so thick. They're just like wandering through with their hands in front of them, trying to get killed by an anaconda or a fucking <laughs> yeah. viper or some shit. Super tough journey. Yeah. These guys are hardcore. Like, that's one thing that's good to remember about Von Humboldt. He's a hardcore motherfucker. Yeah, good. Yeah, you'll see. Anyway, <laughs> they finally make it through. I mean, this is one of the hardest journeys that they make, but they finally make it through this first ridge of the Andes and into Quito which is in the middle of these this mountain range. Like, there's a mountain range on the left, a mountain range above it, a mountain range yeah, on the right. Yeah. Anyway, they stay there for a couple of years. Anyway, while they're in Quito, they're surrounded by volcanoes, and yeah. they're surrounded by mountains, right? They're in the middle of the Andes Mountains. And so he and Bonplan start just summoning, like, a bunch of volcanoes, like, one after the other. They go up uh, Pinchicha. Pinchicha. Yeah, which is 15,386 feet tall. Oh, wow. They summit that thing. Nice. They go and they summon another volcano. They go and summon another volcano. On one of the volcanoes, I think Pinchicha actually, when they get to the top, Humboldt like shimmies out to this like natural rock balcony and he's like looking down into the magma pit. Oh, yeah. And he sees like blue sulfur fumes and he's like choking and almost dying. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck yeah. But then he comes down and he's like, that was the best thing ever. He's just like, he's having the time of his life for the, the time that he's in Quito because he's just getting to take all of these fun expeditions up mountains. Yeah. And he's getting to the whole while, you know, study and measure. You know, they're taking, they have a barometer with them that Jose is carrying all the time. Yeah. So they're taking all these observations of plant life and animal life at each elevation and how that changes. Yeah. And finally, they, he decides to climb Chimborazo, which is this huge mountain that appears like there's no way to get to the top. It's 20,000 foot mountain. It's very tall, right? And obviously, they're not climbing with supplemental oxygen. Oh, yeah. So they're they're getting elevation sickness, like we talked about, <laughs> yeah. haste and hape. They, hey, uh, that occurs at 26,000 feet. It occurs below it, too. I yeah. guess so. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they're not in the death zone here. But at this point in time, actually, Chimborazo was thought to be perhaps the tallest mountain on Earth. And actually, the summit of Chimborazo, I think I have this right, 
is the farthest place that you can get on Earth from the equator or something. Like highest elevation you can get away from. It's the farthest point on the Earth's surface from the Earth's center. Oh. Because the the, the equator bulges a little bit. Yeah. So it's it's close to the equator. So it's yeah, exactly. even though Mount Everest is higher. Yeah, it's farther away from the it's equator. It's farther away from the center of the Earth. That's yeah. cool. That's interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting. Even though that bulge is like almost negligible. Yeah. It still it still puts still I mean, gives it, this nineteen thousand foot tall mountain. It I guess it's nine thousand foot at least yeah. bulge because yeah. Chimborazo is about twenty grand. And yeah. I mean, 20,000 feet and <laughs> Everest is 29. So anyway, they climb up Chimborazo. They don't make it to the summit. They get within a thousand feet of the summit. But at that point in time, at 19,286 feet, Alexander von Humboldt and von Plant and Jose de Pina have climbed higher than any other human oh. on Earth. They've been higher. Do they know that or are they just... They do know that. Nice. He knows that. I mean, you know, unless someone else was doing it at the same time, but in published works thus yeah. far, and who knows if anyone in Tibet... Had, you know, yeah. native people had climbed higher on they Everest. They probably just lived probably at higher elevation. Than yeah. <laughs> but uh, at least in like the European scientific community, yeah. as far as anybody knew, that was the highest anybody had ever been. Yeah. Period. I've, Later, been there, I've been there, man, laying on the floor going, I'm higher than anybody's <laughs> ever been. <laughs> <laughs> that happened to me, dude. I just took like one hit of a joint and I had a bunch of hallucinations. <laughs> I know, right? So weak. I ate one little piece of cake. Yeah. Anyway, um, so at this point, like when they climb Chimborazo, Humboldt is the most experienced mountaineer in the world. Yeah. Oh, shit. So not only is he like a scientist and a mine explorer and like a botanist and a naturalist, he's also the most experienced mountaineer, period. Which sounds Earth. impressive, but yeah. there's only about a billion people in the world, which is a lot. At this point, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One in a billion. Still a lot less people mm-hmm. and a lot less people knowing each other. Yeah. Well, anyway, while on Chimborazo... Humboldt has this revelation that's gonna that shape like you know what's actually I was thinking about this while I was reading about him like I love his way of doing things because it just seems like it consumes and consumes and consumes data and information and then like just lets it all simmer and lets it all cook and then just bam he'll realize something so he has a revelation like that this sort of epiphany while on the summit of Chimborazo and as soon as he gets back as they get back to Quito he starts drafting this this work that will become called the Naturgemelde. Naturgemelde is a, it's an untranslatable German word. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) That basically means, I mean, you can kind of tell what it means. It means like the melding of nature or like the, the oneness of nature over the entirety of the world. Nice. Yeah. Over all things. Naturgemelde. Naturgemelde. Right. It's, it's this huge epiphany he has about the connectedness and the oneness of nature. And he represents it as a drawing. He, he, he basically, he draws Chimborazo, which is the volcano that they climbed. This is the picture that we're looking at right now. (laughs) In profile view. And then he notes, he puts all those annotations at different elevations about, you know, the barometric pressure, Mm -hmm. the elevation, the plant life, you know, Everything he can, like all this information he notes about it and like has it drawn visually on this document. This had, this kind of thing had never been created. There was no like fun graphics about <laughs> yeah. science. Like everything before this was just like taxonomic or statistical tables, you know, like just text written at 15,000 feet. The barometric pressure is this. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was not like a, a drawing like this. It's it's really cool. I mean, it, he you can really see that Humboldt followed that path of kind of binding together science and art. Anyway, Naturgemelde basically it's it shows a you know it's a cross section of that's the cross section, but then Naturgemelde is just the connection of everything. Yeah, it's this you know, and I think when Andrea Wolf titles this book "The Invention of Nature," this is what uh, she's talking about because before Humboldt, there wasn't really an understanding that nature life the natural world was sort of the same and constant across the globe mm-hmm. like it was there's a oneness to it that exists it all operates under the same rules it all operates in the same way yeah people didn't really think of it that way at all before Humboldt. people didn't really think about how humidity and elevation and temperature how that all played a role in the development of the plant and animal life in those areas yeah so he was able to show because he had also climbed a lot of mountains in the alps and in europe he was able to show how the same types of plant life and the same types of animal life existed at the same elevations in the Andes Mountains in as they do part, in the Alps. Yeah. yeah. And so it, he, it was this 
profound and new way of looking at the earth as like a connected whole where everything existed the same way in different places. Yeah. And he expressed that in the Nitarka which is this really cool graphic with all these informational tables on it. He invented the scientific drawing. He did. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. Yeah. So he drafted this as soon as they got back to Quito. It was like this, you know, I'm sure he didn't sleep at all that night. <laughs> He's crazy <laughs> yeah. like that. He just probably just stayed up all night drafting it. And this would be one of his most famous works and one of the one of the biggest ones he got out of this expedition. So yeah, this trip up Chimborazo, that epiphany basically set the foundation for his whole approach to science thereafter. Yeah, because right? he just gained a deeper understanding of yeah, it how really, the world works. Yeah, it really hit home for him that everything everything is connected. Mm-hmm. The, the nature is one thing. It's not like, it's oh, a, there's an meteorology. Exactly. It's yeah. not like, oh, there's meteorology over here, geology over here, botany com- over here. And they're completely everything, isolated from each other. Right. Every yeah. single thing plays a role in the other. Like, it kind of harkened back to him, that understanding of how the lakes were getting smaller because of the lack of plant life led to more erosion. Yeah. He's like, oh, shit. This is all one. And no one else... I mean, if no one else had expressed that scientifically, at least, or, you know, if people, probably a lot of native cultures had those beliefs and understanding, yeah. but like in the science community, that hadn't been expressed before. Botany and meteorology and geology all played a role in what we see. And all of that was connected from the bottom to the top. And basically the rest of his scientific career would be talking about and expressing that idea in different ways all the way until his final work. But we'll get there. But anyway, so after they summoned Chimborazo, he came up with this drawing and this idea for the Natur Gemelda, they decided it was time to move on. And so they headed south to Lima and then to Mexico, which at the time was under the what's called the Vice Royalty of New Spain. Basically, Spain owned like all of South America and Central America. Yeah, up into California. And a big chunk of California, Florida, and the U.S. <laughs> that that whole, that I, what I just talked about, South America, Central America, Mexico, that was all broken up into four Vice Royalties, which are like big states mm-hmm. under the empire of spain anyway they were so they were there um you know under the protection of the spanish vice royalty so when they got to mexico city they were put up they were well taken care of yeah and they were able to spend their time in mexico city traveling to different volcanoes traveling to check out mines traveling to check out caves uh hot springs so they did they spent their time doing a lot more expeditions this point in time is when after you know after traveling to lima which is in peru and then to mexico city in both of those areas, uh, Humboldt was able to observe ancient hieroglyphs from the Mayans and the Aztecs mm-hmm. and to learn more and gain an understanding of the societies that had been there before the Spanish came. He was blown away and he wrote about how these older languages were just as complex and just as thorough and descriptive as European languages. Mm-hmm. One of In his journal, he writes, or in one of his letters, he writes, you could translate entire German texts word for word into this language with no difficulty whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And they, that, you know, which was kind of a revelation at the time because there was an idea or thought out there that like these native cultures were dumber or less yeah, advanced the, or yeah. less, you know, than the European cultures. And he realized he had, you know, kind of another epiphany here realizing like, oh, no, they're absolutely yeah. <laughs> as developed and as advanced intellectually as European cultures. And it further cemented his idea. He's starting to get pretty, I wouldn't say radical, but like politically opposed to the idea of colonialism Mm -hmm. very strongly. Like it started with seeing the slave trade. It extended when he saw like what monoculture and this like urge to cut down forests and plant farms was doing to the natural landscape. And then it further was cemented by, I mean, it's hard to express how grand and huge and like advanced the Mayan and Aztec civilizations were. And the Spanish just completely destroyed them and everything that so much of what they knew was yeah, lost. And he's there watching it happen and he's like well yeah i mean it's it happened hundreds of years prior but he's seeing he's seeing what's I mean, left yeah, of it the destruction yeah. of it and and he's just like oh, like it just really cements for him how terrible this way of doing things is colonizing and farming it, it's just so destructive mm. and this not to mention the freaking slave trade it's just like <clears throat> it's absolutely wrong at this point in his life he's He's only 30, 31 years old, but he's 100% against colonialism Mm -hmm. and imperialism. Anyway, so after a year of living in in Mexico, basically out of the hub of Mexico City, studying different things, by 1804, all of his instruments are broken. (laughs) Just wore out. They just wore out. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, mean, they took really good care of him, but after five years of summoning volcanoes, like... 
they're just they're not really working anymore and he's also feeling isolated from the scientific community of Europe. He's starting to worry that advancements are being made that he's not aware of. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's keeping correspondence to a degree, and he's writing about all these things and amazing things that he's seeing. Anyway, he's starting to feel isolated. His instruments are broken, so he decides, okay, it's time to go home. Um, right before they leave, basically they're like, okay, we got to look for a ship. we got to try and find a ship back. Right before they leave, one of the volcanoes that he had already climbed erupts and he's like oh shit let's go we gotta go climb it well it's erupting like let's go check it out and he leaves yeah he leaves Bonplant to like figure out a ship and then him and jose like start heading out but before they even get like a couple days away a messenger comes and is like hey we just found a ship you gotta come back no (laughs) and he's like dang it (laughs) but i'm surprised he didn't just say oh fuck let's get the next ship and that's what he did nine times out of ten (laughs) this time uh he really wanted to keep he wanted, wanted to go yeah so anyway um so they leave they actually go back to Cuba briefly at this point from Mexico to Cuba to pick up all the stuff they stowed there before. Oh, yeah. Because they had like a bunch of trunks of uh, specimens and notes and all that stuff. And then they leave Cuba and they're headed to the U.S. and they sail like right into a hurricane. Perfect. Yeah. And for six days, they're just like basically caught in this hurricane. And he writes like, how ironic would it be to survive all of the troubles of the Andes Mountains and the Amazon rainforest to not have died, not have been killed by a giant snake, not have been killed by a poisonous plant, through all that shit, to just die here on a fucking hurricane. Get killed by a bunch of stupid wind. Yeah, he's pissed about it, but like, it was close. Like, the sailors on the ship, I guess, were all like, fuck it, and like, broke the rules about the rum rations and just drank all the rum, because they were all sure they were gonna die. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. And then when the hurricane's over, they're like, great, we got a two-month voyage with no rum now. Somehow they made it through, and they um, sailed to Philadelphia, because he wanted to stop in the U.S., perhaps for heading back to Europe. Okay, yeah. So this is in this is in 1804, right? So it's a the US is a very young country yeah. at this point and Thomas Jefferson is president. He's the third president of the United States. Mm-hmm. He's 61 years old. And he obviously Jefferson is a pretty accomplished guy at this yeah. point. Not only is he president, but he just completed the Louisiana Purchase. Oh. Um which doubled the size of his new country. He obviously, you know, was the writer of the Declaration of Independence. He got it for, he got the Louisiana for a bargain. Five million, I think. Super cheap. Which is kind of funny, actually. The um, uh, We'll talk about it a little bit later, but Spain's hold on the region was already at this point starting to fail. One of the first chinks in the armor for Spain as an empire was when the French took the land that was the Louisiana Purchase oh, yeah. from Spain, but the French took it and just sold it immediately to TJ. <laughs> they yeah. boom flipped it. They boom flipped it, exactly. <laughs> they just they took it from the Spanish and just sold it to Thomas Jefferson <laughs> immediately. <laughs> anyway, so Thomas Jefferson, legend, he's already heard about Humboldt. And so when Humboldt writes him a letter before they get there, he writes him a letter from yeah. Cuba. He's like, hey, I'd love to visit. He's like, hell yeah. Like, come visit. So at this point, he's you know Humboldt's like 31 years old. And Thomas Jefferson, president of the United States of America, recent revolutionary, author of the Declaration of Independence, is like super stoked to meet him because he was already kind of a legendary figure in his own right. So he goes there. He goes to Philadelphia and then to Washington to meet Thomas Jefferson. And they spend about a week together and they're just geeking out. They're just loving it. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson at this point, he's a he's a grandfather. He likes to spend a bunch of time with his grandkids. But his biggest thing that he's most excited about is farming. He's (laughs) just like a philosopher farmer. Right. Yeah. You've heard of Monticello. That's his his big farm where he grew like thousands of different species and different, you know, like types of plants and vegetables and did a lot of study into botany. So he was a scientist as well. Oh, yeah. He just sent out Lewis and Clark. Remember we were talking about Lewis and Clark? Yeah. Yeah. Right before um, Hummel gets there, he had just sent Lewis and Clark to go oh, yeah. uh, figure out their stuff. Nice. It's a very interesting time. We're going to yeah. do some stuff about. But anyway, so they, they hit it off. They're having a great time. Are they just hanging out at the White House or? Yeah, and then they go to Monticello. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, and the other thing about it that makes them really interested in Humboldt is he just spent a year in Mexico, and now that they've purchased, now that the U.S. completed the Louisiana Purchase, uh, Mexico is their neighbor. So much so that there's disputed land. Thomas Jefferson thinks that their border is on the Rio Grande, and Mexico, or New Spain, yeah. thinks that the border is at this other river. The Basically, the difference between those two rivers is the whole state of Texas. It's not that big. Yeah, right. Not a big deal. Yeah. So James Madison, who was Secretary of State, and Thomas Jefferson were trying to figure out what to do about this land deal. And then Humboldt shows up, and he's just spent a year under the protection of the Viceroyalty of New Spain. And they're like, so can you tell us a little bit about New Spain and this area? 
and Humboldt just produces for him like lists and figures and facts. He's got like encyclopedic yeah. knowledge of this whole territory. Nice. And even though he was like, he had been given leave to go to Spain by the king of Spain. He just immediately gave all of this information <laughs> over to the yeah. U.S. government. He was a great spy. <laughs> well, I mean, like, was it just like geographic knowledge or like? Yeah, but that's of... political shit. Yeah. I mean, they wanted they needed to know what was in Texas yeah. to know if they wanted to fight over those borders. Yeah, but it's not even where he was. He was in Mexico City. Yeah, but he got all the information just from... like from textbooks or whatever yeah from i mean he was there for a year so he yeah. like went and went through all their archives mm-hmm. and figured everything out and probably went through a bunch of maps and yeah. probably he was crazy like that yeah. he never slept so he knew all this stuff he gave him a bunch of inside information about new spain as a government and about that geography and about their holdings and about how many mines there were there and how many farms there were there and all this stuff that yeah. was super important to their geopolitical intentions he didn't give a fuck. He was just like, <laughs> yeah. Well, he, didn't he was give like, a shit. fuck Spain. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, there was this idea back then: the Republic of Letters. Have you heard that term? No. I think it's the Republic of Letters. Uh, it's this idea that scientists, wherever they were, were you know part of one nation with each other. Even if their respective nations were at war, they still wanted to support the free exchange of ideas. Yeah, and just like their goal is to promote knowledge, promote knowledge, and yeah. expand science. And you know, um, so the Republic of Letters was this idea that. It didn't, it didn't matter what the wartime stance was of your yeah. country. You would still exchange information with fellow scientists. And that's really what Humboldt was doing with Jefferson, was giving him this data that he had yeah. gathered and talking to him about the possibilities, and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, it just kind of happens to turns out that uh, <laughs> he gave them all the information they wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, the other thing about it was, I mean, Humboldt was not a fan of Spain and their impact on South America. Oh, yeah. He had just seen it. He had just seen it all. Whereas America, to him was this like brave new endeavor of government by democracy. So even, I mean, he probably did know a little bit that he was fucking over New Spain in their dealings with the U.S. by giving the U.S. all the information he had, but he was like, fuck the empires. Here's a democracy. This is young, burgeoning democracy in the parlance of our times. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So they spent every day together for a week before he left. Okay, so late June 1804, Humboldt leaves the U.S. and heads back to Europe. He arrives in Paris to a hero's welcome. You know, people have been reading his letters and are really happy about all the stuff he's been doing. And he brought back over 60,000 plant specimens, including 6,000 species, of which 2,000 species were never before discovered Uh and never had before had been like all just in his little trunk. Yeah, he had like 40, 50 trunks. Mm. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) remember, he had a lot lot of money. So you're just buying another (laughs) trunk and put more stuff in (laughs) it. He had so much meteorological, astronomical and geological data tens of thousands of data points on these three areas. Like literally at that point, he's 35 years old. He brought more scientific data back to the scientific community in Europe than any one person ever, period. Yeah. He single-handedly, I mean, well, him and Bonplant and Jose de Pina, single or triple-handedly brought... (laughs) (laughs) Triple-handedly. Advanced science and the empirical study of nature to such a degree that it can't be overstated. When he returned to Paris, he was a little bit disappointed because when he had left... It was a burgeoning young republic, a lot like the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, with these different democratic ideals. By the time he gets back, Napoleon had just declared that he was going to become emperor, which is not democratic. Nice. He would actually be coronated that December. But he, he stays in Paris, even though he's a little disappointed with the whole um, progression of French democracy, because Paris is just like a hub of science and philosophy yeah. and young people getting excited about all that stuff. Like, he, he talks about how... There's just a different way of being in that city. Like a duke can rent out the top floor of a building that, you know, just someone who works in a shop is also living in. There's not like the separation of classes in oh, a crazy yeah, yeah. way. So that, yeah. And everybody is literate, which is not common. Everybody's reading. He said, like, even the girl selling flowers at the shop has her nose buried in a book. Like nice. <laughs> people didn't read that much, except in Paris, everybody read. Yeah. Everybody read. Everybody was a philosopher. Everybody was a scientist. <laughs> like, <laughs> he loved it. So he did. He hung out in Paris for a good long while, partying and hanging out. I mean, he was only 35 and he just got back from this crazy, crazy, I mean, five year journey in South America uh, during which he had felt a little bit isolated from the scientific community. And now so, he's back in it. So coming back to Paris, he was like right in it. Yeah. <laughs> he meets this guy, Gay Lissac, who was a balloonist. Balloonist. Yeah. So he was like, he did hot air balloons. Yeah. He actually, they got to exchange notes because. Humboldt was the person who had been at the highest altitude 
until Gay Lussac went above 20,000 feet in but a balloon. But that was in a balloon, yeah. But he was still able to take barometric readings. Anyway, so they were friends. They shared a bedroom for a while in a study. Nice. Humboldt was gay. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like openly gay, but, yeah. you know. In a shared bedroom. Yeah. Anyway, they had a, he hung out in Paris and had a really great time. And But then after a while, he kind of realizes, okay, I brought all this data back. I went on this incredible journey. I got to do something with it. I got to write something. I got to publish some works. He decides he has to get out of Paris to do it so he can get serious, stop partying so much. He's probably partying a lot. Anyway, would be. Yeah. I know, right? So he travels to Rome. In Rome, he reconnects with Simone Bolivar, who he had met previously in Paris. At this time, Bolivar is uh, just a young wealthy kind of hothead he's just out there partying in paris yeah. like that's why he's there he's a you know a child of aristocrats uh but bolivar interestingly enough had walked to rome from paris all roads lead to it because good point because <laughs> he was depressed and he's like i'm gonna go for a walk yeah and then he ended up in rome oh nice anyway while they're in rome they begin to talk about revolution I mean, the American Revolution had already occurred, and Bolivar is, like, pretty hot-headed, and so he's, like, putting out the idea a lot, like, oh, we need to rebel against Spain, et cetera, et cetera. So some of those really early discussions with Simone Bolivar, who would later be one of the instigators of many revolutions in South America, uh-huh. we'll get into it later. Oh, yeah, some Bolivar those... named after, that's, uh, well, Bolivia must have been named after him. Yep. Well, that's why the name sounded familiar. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, some of those very early conversations began with Alexander von Humboldt. Mm-hmm. Anyway, after a little while in Rome, Humboldt leaves with Lassac and another guy to check out Naples and Mount Vesuvius. I'm always checking out Naples. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, while they're checking out Naples, Mount Vesuvius erupts, which sometimes happens when you're checking out Naples. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> anyway, Humboldt is super stoked. He writes in his journal like that he felt like Vesuvius had done him this kindness to erupt while he was nearby so they could go check it out. Because Vesuvius isn't like a crazy blowing up. I mean, after Pompeii. Yeah. I mean, it killed everybody in Pompeii. That was like oh, that was a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. So that's the same volcano that buried Pompeii just yeah. way after. So this is just a little burp of an eruption. Tiny he, little burp. He witnesses. Yeah. I, that If you look it up, uh, Vesuvius erupts like all the time. Yeah. It's very active. Not all of them are catastrophic. I think that's typically the nature of volcanoes is if it's happening yeah. all the time, it's not a big deal. Yeah. If it doesn't happen, doesn't happen, doesn't happen, and then boom. Yeah. It's a problem. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so Humboldt gets back from this journey in South America. He's got all this data, and he decides he needs to start writing about it. So anyway, he takes a little bit of time in Naples, checks out Vesuvius. Then he goes back home to Prussia. The Prussian king grants him a large salary, which is good because he was income. out of money. He spent his whole freaking fortune on he, this trip. He blew through all of it, huh? He blew through his whole, pretty much his whole wad. Good like, for him. Yeah. He <laughs> took five years and spent all of his mom's money. That's what's up. Yeah. So he gets back to Prussia. He's the most famous Prussian in the world. So the king employs him, quote unquote, as like his chamberlain. Which basically just means he gives him a big salary. Not like a crazy huge salary. It'd probably be equivalent, like in the US right now, to like 120 grand a year or something yeah. like that. Certainly enough to live on, certainly enough to do some cool stuff, but he wasn't like a crazy rich person. But he doesn't have to do anything for it. So, <laughs> yeah, just have uh, to write, do what he's been doing. Yeah, he didn't have to do shit. There, were no, there was basically no agreement about it. It was yeah. just like, here you go. Yeah. Score. So he has some time at this point. He's back in Prussia and he has some time to do some other studies. For a while, he gets really into magnetism. But he ends up getting really depressed, actually. Really? Yeah, being back in Prussia, running out of money, and uh, I think there was a, I don't know, by my reading of a couple of different things, it just seems like there was kind of a, he felt like there was a bit of a weight on him, like with all of this data and all this information, he just like wasn't. Yeah, like the collecting, it's the fun part, and yeah, he's got to freaking figure out what to do with it. Trying to put it all together, like yeah. it's, it's a pretty challenging thing. He writes this book called Views of Nature, which is... Basically, just like his narrative of his journey to South America. It's kind of like the published version of his journals. And uh, he wrote it while he was super depressed, but uh, everybody loved it. And it would go on to inspire a lot of people, including Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Charles Darwin. Jules Verne would steal a lot of stuff, including like direct quotes (laughs) from the book for some of his stories, like Around the World in 80 Days and all that stuff. But after he writes it, he's still pretty depressed, and so he decides to leave leave Berlin, because he was in Berlin, and go back to Paris. Uh, but the Prussian king lets him keep his salary, even though he moves to France. Oh, fuck yeah. Even though they were at war with France. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a, a little bit of a hiccup, but he's, so he's working remotely from Paris. He's working remote. Yeah, he's, he's working remote. 
go, moving to Paris was a big, big improvement for him and his state of mind. He immediately is kind of get gets back into his former self, working all the time. He's writing like three or four or five books at once, doing more experiments, doing yeah. lecture circuits, going nonstop, you know, doing all the crazy stuff. And of course, carrying on correspondence with Thomas Jefferson and Simone Bolivar and people all over the place exchanging letters, you know. He doesn't really ever, I mean, he... At this point, he's starting to put out some scientific works, but he really wants to go on another journey. Like, he just had so much fun, he really wants to just go on another expedition. For a long time, at least, he's not able to, to get that, put that together, and he ends up pretty much just working the lecture circuit and uh, writing and, and doing that kind of thing. But at least, I mean, it seems like Paris is the right place for him. He seems to be thriving there. Yeah. Likes the energy. He likes the energy. It's good for him. Yeah. He always promised he would return to South America, but he never he never does. For the rest of his life, yeah. Yeah. It was just a one and done for him. Yeah. He does, however, uh, take one more important trip to Russia, during which he has to deal with, like, places getting shut down because of the plague and all this other stuff. But he ends up making it to this mountain range that he was trying to get to and going up it and making, making these observations that really cements it for him that like the same thing that's going on in these mountains is what was going on in the oh, Andes. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's like the the mountains that he gets to are the same distance from the equator as the ones in the Andes he was studying or something like that. Just north instead of south. Yeah, and so he really wanted to like check these two like he wanted that information to make sure his theories like held true that in the north yeah at the same latitude it was the same as in the south. So after he takes that journey he's ready like he he kind of is ready for his last work he's in his like 60s at this point oh yeah yeah this is later so it's taking him forever to get through all those trunks yeah i mean yeah <laughs> yeah tens of thousands of observations and data yeah. points and six thousand species like you know he bonplant is working on all the botany stuff but okay. he's doing all the geographical barometric meteorological and animal stuff yeah and so he's got all of anyway after this trip to russia he finally feels ready to write this series that he ends up writing called cosmos and it's his attempt to basically write a you know volume of works that puts down everything in one place and kind of like and really takes like the graphic of Turgamelda and lays out all the data and all the information in a multi-volume huge extraordinary work replete with amazing drawings and illustrations and all this stuff. And he basically yeah. spends all of the money he has <laughs> to, to take his entire lecture circuit and all the information he had and all of his journeys and put it into one yeah, volume. Yeah, just the sum of all of his life. The sum of his whole freaking yeah. life. And he publishes this work. And I mean, this this work, Cosmos, is the fuel for so many scientists down the line. We already talked about you know, Darwin, but he's a good example. Like yeah. basically that work inspired him to go on his trip on the HMS Beagle and then write The Origin of Species. So... As a result of Humboldt's contributions, we end up getting all kinds of shit. Yeah, which is what we're going to talk about in the next episode, right? That's what we're going to talk about next week. All right. Because the ripple effects from Humboldt's, Humboldt's publishing this piece and his trip to South America are farther reaching than you might think. Ooh. So we're going to have to do it in another episode. So that wraps up Humboldt then, huh? Yeah, that's pretty much the end of his journey is nice. the writing of this book, Cosmos. But like I said, we'll get more into the ramifications of his life in next week's episode so well cool i'm glad to have learned a little bit about alexander von humboldt i feel like because i went to humboldt state university a little humble little school that's where i went to college and i i was like who's hum what's this name humble where's it come from and i would google it and look at the wikipedia page and be like that's ah, too much to read yeah and so, <laughs> so i was under the impression that it was named after some guy yeah but uh now I kind of know a little bit who he was. It was named after this guy. Yeah. And he never actually went to Northern California. He never even made it there. <laughs> no. But his ideas and his scientific, uh, what, what have you there, <laughs> it made it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say like the last ripple effect of Alexander von Humboldt is you going to that school. Yeah. And then you sitting in this chair. Oh. Yeah. And then our listeners listening. Oh, yeah, that's another step in the chain. another step in the chain. Directly reaching through time and touching our (laughs) listeners right inside their ears right right now. Tickling their little ear hairs. Well, thank you guys for listening. This has been super fun. I uh, hope you've appreciated the story of Alexander von Humboldt. Again, our primary source for this episode is a book called The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolfe. And I highly recommend you check it out. As with all of our books, we, we recommend you check them out. Yeah. <laughs> at your local library. Yeah, 100%. Libraries better than Amazon. I've been supporting my local thrift stores buying stacks of books, probably about eight books a week, which is slightly more than I 
could possibly read. Yeah, you're reading like six and a half a week right now, right? <laughs> I wish I was reading six and a half pages a week. <laughs> if I had time, I'm like buying these stacks of books. I'm like, when the fuck am I going to read these? Am yeah. I going to quit my jobs for this? Somebody so, is. Anyway, yeah. thank you guys right. so much. Let's do a, uh, you want to do a fortune cookie? Yeah, let's do a little cookie of fortune. Yeah. What a fortunate cookie we have here. Yeah. We create our own destiny with every step we take. That's a good one for this episode. That's a pretty good one, especially because he did a lot of stepping. He did so much stepping. He stepped up mountains. He walked all over the place. Up volcanoes. Yeah. He he was, you know, it's crazy. I mean, it just kind of blows my mind that he was not only like this amazing scientist, but also the most experienced mountaineer, period. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like he know, uh, Yeah. He did a lot of stepping up mountains. Yeah. And he created his own destiny. Yeah. 100%. After his mom died, he was just like, fuck it, I'm going to go become amazing. Yeah. yeah. Become amazing. Yeah. Become amazing. Become beautiful. Become an animal. Beautiful Animals Podcast. Beautiful Animals Podcast. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Yeah, uh, that's the end of that. I think, uh, yeah, check us out on the Instagram there, uh, beautiful.animals.pod. Mm-hmm. Send us an email if you feel like it, uh, beautifulanimalspodcast at gmail.com. That's a Please good do. place for correspondence yeah we love your feedback we We appreciate everything you guys have to say feel free to give us a call if you have our numbers (laughs) anyway guys you guys are amazing go out and live your life go climb whatever mountains you want to and don't forget to juice it don't forget to drink some water on top of that mountain if you want to you can bring your own water from the bottom of the mountain carry it up there and drink it (laughs) or you can find your own water up there there are many ways trying to say is stay hydrated guys (laughs) all right anyway thanks for listening have a great night love you guys